You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is by your grace that you have given us your word also. Apart from all of the spiritual blessings that we have enjoyed as your people, you give us your word which sanctifies us and informs us and equips us and edifies us. We thank you for all that you accomplished through your word, and may you accomplish those things in our hearts this morning, that you would be glorified here through and in your people as we understand your word and obey it. Give us an appreciation for our good shepherd, through this text we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we are going to finish this discourse, John chapter 10, looking at verses 17 and 18. This is the Good Shepherd Discourse. We've been here for a number of weeks, and we have been looking at the many blessings that come to the people of God purchased by the death of the Son of God. So all of the blessings that we have seen in this Good Shepherd Discourse, which come to the sheep, uh, eternal life and security, salvation, deliverance, pasture, all of those blessings we might ask, how are those blessings secured for the people of God? How do they become ours? By whose grace or by whose doing do these blessings become ours? Are they by our doing? Is it something that we do? Is it a decision that we make? Is it an action that we take that secures these things? Or is it that somebody else has secured these blessings on behalf of us? And that is the, that is the reality of it. Somebody has secured these blessings for us. By what Christ has done, He has purchased and guaranteed and secured every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that comes to those for whom he died, namely his sheep. So we're looking at verses 17 and 18 now, finishing this discussion of the the sacrificial shepherd. Really, verses 11 through 18 is the sacrificial shepherd. We looked at the beneficiaries of that sacrifice, and now today we are looking at the voluntary and sovereign nature of this sacrifice. Now this is something that you and I have to get in our heads if we are to rightly understand the death of Christ. What Jesus did on the cross cannot be understood rightly or fully apart from understanding that what He did was voluntary and it was sovereign. He was not a victim. He was a volunteer. And once you remove from your understanding of the cross its voluntary and sovereign nature, then you open yourselves up to all kinds of nonsense in understanding the death of Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples of the nonsense. Some have taught that the death of Christ was an accident, that Jesus was merely the wrong man at the wrong place at the wrong time. 
And he ran afoul of the religious leaders and he was sort of a, a political revolutionary or a spiritual revolutionary. And he had revolutionary ideas on the Sabbath and on religious freedom and on God. And because his ideas were kind of ahead of his time, he ended up running afoul of the Romans and they crucified him. Well, that's nonsense. There is a book being written. It's going to come out and you're going to see it, I'm sure, at Costco or probably everywhere else called Killing Jesus by Bill O'Reilly. It's coming out this September. He he wasn't content with giving us the history and a right understanding, I guess, of the killing of Lincoln and the killing of Kennedy. So he's going to follow this up to, with a, finishing his trilogy with the killing of Jesus. Now, I can't wait for this. This is really good, and I'll tell you why. Because the publisher has announced that the killing, the book Killing Jesus is going to be, quote, the story of Jesus of Nazareth as a beloved and controversial young revolutionary brutally killed by Roman soldiers, end quote. Catch that? Yeah. Now, if Bill O'Reilly thinks that the story of Jesus is the story of a controversial young revolutionary from Nazareth who was brutally killed by Roman soldiers, he has missed the point entirely. Entirely. There's only two things right about that statement. Jesus was from Nazareth and he was brutally killed. The rest of it is completely wrong. Completely wrong. In fact, I heard Bill O'Reilly on a radio program this last week talking about this book and O'Reilly said this. He said, Jesus of Nazareth was not killed because he claimed to be God. The execution of Jesus had nothing to do with claiming to be God. And here's what O'Reilly said. He said, the execution of Jesus was all about power and money. Power and money. Oh, okay, Bill. Thanks for straightening that out. Bill O'Reilly is going to get to the bottom of it. For 1900 years, we have misunderstood the death of Christ. But thanks to Bill O'Reilly... He is going to get to the bottom of this and uncover the truth that has been waiting for so long to be revealed to all of us. You just remember, Christian, that he's looking out for you. right? He's going to blaspheme your God by rewriting the central event of your faith, but he's looking out for you. He shares your values. He's battling for your ideas. You believe that, you are deceived. He's not looking out for you. You know what he's looking out for? His pocketbook is what he's looking out for. Would you want to stand before God and answer for rewriting the history of the central event of the Christian faith and saying it was about money and power and for leading millions of people to believe that nonsense? Would you want to stand and give an account for that? I certainly wouldn't. Some people say that the death of Jesus, that he died as a martyr. He died as a martyr. That he had these these virtuous ideas of loving your neighbor and, and looking out for others and feeding the poor and helping the sick and bringing healing and and uh, because he had these noble ideas, he kind of died. He, he sacrificed himself in order to demonstrate that he was uh, his love. And so we are supposed to be so compelled by the selflessness of the sacrifice that we would pick up these ideals of, of feeding the poor and helping the sick and, and uh, giving and, and loving one another. We would take these and want to champion them because he has gone before us and he's sort of a, a torch uh, bearer. He bore the torch and went ahead of us and we're supposed to follow in this path. He was a, a great martyr for the faith. That's what some people say. In fact, some people mock the idea that in the death of Christ, Christ paid a penalty in giving his life for the sins of his people. Some people mock the idea of what we call the penal substitutionary view of the atonement. Penal meaning, meaning a judicial payment was paid. Substitution meaning that he actually stood in the place of all those who will be saved. He was a substitute. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now men like Brian McLaren, if you've heard that word, it's probably because you know that he is associated with the emergent church movement. Now the emergent church movement as a movement is basically defunct. But though the movement went defunct, all of these leaders and emergent people with all of their heresies went off into all the mainline congregations and sort of mastitized like a bad cancer in the church. 
So men like Brian McLaren and Tony Jones and Doug Padgett and Rob Bell, these guys that once were uh, associated with the emergent church movement, now are still producing their heresy and publishing their heresy. Brian McLaren does not understand the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, and he mocks it. And in talking about the idea that the son would, the father would punish the son in the place of people whom he would forgive so that he could declare righteous another group of people, that idea of substitution and that the death of Christ was a penalty, McLaren in his book, The Story We Find Ourselves In, writes this, quote, How does punishing an innocent person make things better? That just sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like divine child abuse, end quote. That's McLaren's characterization of, of our view of substitutionary penal atonement, that it is divine child abuse. That's his understanding of it. As if Jesus was an unwilling participant in this drama, and the father, with an unwilling son, throttled him so that he could be kind to you. This would be like, in McLaren's mind, the, the, the atonement is equated to this. I am so angry with you. You haven't really done anything to make me angry, but I'm so angry with you, I could just throttle you for some reason. I have this wrath that I cannot contain and I cannot control, and I don't want to throttle you, so I grab Shepley, and I drag him out behind the barn, which would be difficult because he's getting bigger. I might want to do Liam instead, but I drag Shepley out behind the barn, and I throttle him, and I whip him, and beat him, and punish him, and vent my anger on him so that I can be kind next time I see you. See, that's the that's divine child abuse. That's how McLaren characterizes the atonement of Christ. Is that what he did? Was it the father grabbing an unwilling whipping post and venting his anger on that unwilling whipping post so that he could be kind to you next time he saw you? Is that the atonement? No, the atonement is nothing as crass and offensive as that. You know what it is? The people that the Father loved were under the wrath of God justly for their sin. And the divine Son who pre-existed and eternally dwelt with the Father, whom the Father loved and who loved the Father, and never had a, a break in His relationship with the Father, that Son came to this earth and took upon Himself human flesh and lived a perfectly righteous life with the intention to of willingly, by His own initiative, as an act of His own will, to go and to lay down His life and to pay the penalty that was owed by the people for whom he died. See, that's a, that's a beautiful view of the atonement, isn't it? Isn't that so much better than divine child abuse? That the divine son would pay the divine penalty for divine wrath for the people whom the Father had given to him. That's beautiful. Well, let's see what Jesus teaches about his death, the purpose of it, and the nature of it in John 10, verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, let's read it. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Now, we're going to stop there for just a second, because verse 18 repeats verse 17. So we're going to go rather quickly through verse 17, and then we're going to see verse 18 repeats verse 17 and sort of expands upon it. So we just want to notice a couple of things that Jesus says in verse 17. First, he says, for this reason, the Father loves me. Now, that's kind of an odd statement. For this reason, the Father loves me. And if we just we read that, we might think, and we would wrongly think, that the only reason the Father loves the Son is because the Son was willing to die. That, that's a wrong idea entirely. It's kind of a bit of a curious way that Jesus states this. And we have to admit that any time we begin to talk about or try and explain the love relationship or the knowledge that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are entering into holy ground and mysterious ground, and we have to tread lightly and we have to be very careful. 
when Jesus said it is for this reason that the Father loves me, he is not saying that apart from that sacrifice, the Father would not love him. And he is not saying that it is only because of this sacrifice that the Father loves him. And he is not saying that by the sacrifice he makes himself worthy of the Father's love or that he earns the Father's love. See, those are all wrong-headed notions of what Jesus is saying. I think that what Jesus is saying here is something far more profound than it first strikes us. And I would sort of try and capture the essence of it this way. This is taking into consideration everything in the context and everything so far that we've seen in the Gospel of John. Here's how I would summarize it. The Father has always from eternity past loved the Son. And the Son has always from eternity past loved the Father. And this love is something that you and I cannot comprehend or understand. Now the Father, because He loved the Son, gave a people to His Son. We've seen this over and over in John. We see it again in John chapter 17. And we see it here in John chapter 10. Because of the Father's love for His Son, the Father gave a people to His Son. The Son received that love gift. And He loved the Father. And He loved those whom the Father had given to Him. And it was the will of the Father that the Son would come here to redeem, to purchase, to buy and to die for all that the Father had given to Him. And it was the Father's will that the Son would save fully and forever and secure the blessings that He would give to His Son. That the Son would purchase those on behalf of those people. That He would atone and pay for the sins of those people. That He would lay down His life and He would gather all of them in without losing a single one. That was the Father's will. Now, the Father had that will, and the Son, because He is one with the Father, shared the very same will. The Son, in His act of obedience to the Father in His incarnation, expressed His love to the Father, and in this sacrifice, the Father sees the Son and loves the Son in this sacrifice, because He sees the Son doing fully His will, submitting to His will and doing exactly what the Father sent Him to this earth to do, to buy back, to pay for, to atone for, and to save this group of people. And the Father delights in the sacrifice of the Son, and the Father delights in the Son of His love. And Jesus is saying, this reason, in this sacrifice, this is not the only reason, but this is another reason that the Father loves the Son. And this is another way in which the Father expresses His love to the Son. In that even in this sacrifice, the Father delights in that. He delights in that sacrifice. He delights in the Son of His love. He sees the Son doing what He sent the Son to do. Their will is one. And for this reason and in this sacrifice, the Father takes pleasure and He pours out not just His wrath, but listen, also His love upon the Son of His love. This is, if you think that on the death, on the cross, that Jesus Christ ceased to be loved by the Father, you've got it wrong. Did the Father pour out His wrath on the Son? He did. But did the Father stop loving the Son? No, He didn't. When you discipline your children, do you stop loving them? No, you don't. The Father, it says in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it pleased the Lord to crush Him. We can't even comprehend that. We can't even fathom that. That on the cross, the Son bore the wrath of the Father. But not for one moment did the Father cease loving Him with an infinite and eternal love that you and I cannot even fathom. Those two things both went together on the cross. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And he lays down his life, and it's a willing act. It is a voluntary act, and he says he does it so that he might take it again. Let me give you one other passage that kind of describes the love or the delight of the Father in the sacrifice of the Son. Philippians 2, do you remember that? Therefore, after talking about the condescension of the Son, suffering the death, even death on a cross, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what the Father does for the Son. Why? Because he delights in the Son of his love and in that sacrifice. And so for this reason, because he lays down his life for his sheep, the Father sees what the Son does, and he loves the Son. And it's not the only reason, but it's another reason why the Father can delight in the Son, because the Son came to do this on behalf of his people. Willingly, he says, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And I want you to notice that the laying down of the life and the taking it again are twice in this passage, once in verse 17, once in verse 18. They are coupled together. You cannot have the resurrection without the crucifixion, obviously, but neither can you have the crucifixion without the resurrection because Jesus has authority over both of these events. The resurrection was not plan B, by the way. You understand that? The resurrection was the predetermined plan of God that God would raise him up. And the son knew this. The son knew that he was coming to die and that he would raise himself up again. Who is it that raised Jesus from the dead? There are passages which describe the Father as raising the Son. There are passages that describe the Holy Spirit raising the Son. And here, as in John 2, when Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. In those instances, the Scriptures speak of the Son raising himself from the dead. So here is Jesus saying, I have authority to lay down my life, and I am going to lay down my life so that I may take it again. And he knew that both of these things would go together. He would lay down his life through crucifixion, and he would take his life again through resurrection. Now look at verse 18. Verse 18 restates verse 17, but more information is added, and something far more powerful and profound is even said. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. No one has taken it from me. Now that is a profound statement when you... Keep in mind the context. What is the context? Now, not just the Good Shepherd discourse, but something else. Do you remember when this happened? This is part of a section. In fact, this is the last verse. No, this isn't the last verse. Verse 21 is the last verse, technically. But this is the last of Jesus' words. In a section of John that began back in chapter 7. 7 verse 1, remember chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and all the way up through verse 21 of chapter 10, all cover at the most two weeks in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 7 begins with him going up to Jerusalem to the Feast of Booths, to the Feast of Tabernacles. And then there he had a conversation, an argument with the Pharisees during that week. Chapter 7 ends with him uh, on the very final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, chapter 8 is him in the temple on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles saying, I am the light of the world. And the Jews responded negatively to that. He had this discussion with the Jews. Some believed in him. But then Jesus showed that their belief was really not belief. He called them children of the devil, said, you're still trying to kill me. Chapter end, At the end of chapter 8, he says, he declares himself to be the I am. The Jews picked up stones to stone him at the end of chapter 8. He hid himself, walked out of the temple. All of this is so far just one week at the end of chapter 8. In chapter 9, as he's walking out of the temple, having hid himself while they're trying to stone him, he sees the man born blind. He heals the man born blind. All of that stuff in chapter 9 takes place over the course of just a couple of days. The man born blind is kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus finds him in the temple and has this discussion and says all of these things in chapter 10 to the Pharisees. Now, all of that, 7, 8, 9, 10, is at the most... Two weeks in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is going on in the context that makes chapter 10, verse 18 so significant when Jesus says, no one takes it from me? I want you, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to go back to John chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read you a few verses. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. In verse 6, Jesus said to his brothers, my time has not yet come. 
Verse 8, I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. Verse 11, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast. Why were they seeking him? They were seeking to kill him. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? We don't seek to kill you. They denied it. But the people in Jerusalem knew, verse 25, some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, is not this the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. Look at verse 29. Jesus said, I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to seize him. And laid, and no man laid his hand on him, for his hour had not yet come. In verse 32, the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Verse 43, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. In verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? See, they wanted the officers to seize Jesus and bring him back. Why do you figure? Because they were trying to kill him. Look at chapter 8, verse 36. Jesus said, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Verse 40, but as it is, Jesus said to them, you are seeking to kill me. And in verse 58 of 59 of chapter 8, they gave expression to it in verse 59 when it says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. Now what had they been doing for a week? What had they been doing for a week? Did you see the theme? They sent others to to seize him. They tried to seize him. His hour had not yet come. They were plotting his death. They were planning his death. They were moving forward with his death. And they ramped it up in chapter 11. They said, it's better that this man die than that the whole nation perish. We need to do something or else everybody's going to believe in him. They were planning and plotting his murder for almost two full weeks. It was the worst kept secret in Jerusalem that everybody wanted him dead. All the leaders of the nation wanted him dead. And now Jesus stands before these very Pharisees and said, no one takes my life from me. Who do you think he's talking to and what do you think he's talking about? You know what they were probably thinking in their very minds while he has given them the Good Shepherd Discourse? This man is insane. This man must die. And Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody. You do not have authority to take my life. None of you have authority to take my life. You do not control the timing of my death. You do not control the circumstances of my death. You do not control the manner of my death. Everything was under his sovereign control because nobody takes his life from him. They say, but didn't the Jews, weren't they the active agents in it? Didn't they plan his death and plot his death? Didn't they manipulate Pilate into giving a death sentence? Wasn't it the Jews who whipped the crowd up into saying, release for us Barabbas and crucify this man? We will not have this man to reign over us. Wasn't that the Jews? That was all their work. But nobody, not a single Jew there, took his life from him. But didn't the Romans drive the nails? Didn't they put the spear in his side? Didn't they hang him on a cross? Didn't they scourge him and whip him and put a crown of thorns on him and beat him and mock him? They did. But none of them took his life from him. Who was it that took his life from him? He said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, and he died. No one takes his life from him. Not the Jews, not the Romans. Listen, they were the means that God used to accomplish what Jesus was doing. They bear responsibility for their wickedness, but they are the players. They are the actors. And don't confuse this. They did exactly what they wanted to do. They expressed their love for darkness and their hatred for the light. They expressed their hostility to the one true God and their hatred for Jesus Christ. That was all the expression of their darkened and hardened hearts. Those men, Romans and Jews, did exactly what God predetermined should happen. They were the means... But at no point did they do anything other than what Jesus was allowing them to do, decreeing that they should do, 
and making sure it actually happened. Nobody took his life from him. It was completely his own doing. Peter described this in Acts chapter 2 when he preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Listen to what he did as he indicted the crowd. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, listen, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Who did the crucifixion? The Jews and the Romans. But guess what? It was the predetermined plan, and by the foreknowledge of God, this was the work of Christ. He would come and he would lay down his life. And he would do this by his own initiative. The apostles in Acts chapter 4 prayed this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That was their prayer. Did you catch that? Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Gentiles, all of these players doing what? Exactly what God predestined should occur. The sin of these men did not thwart the plan of God. The sin of these men carried out and executed the plan of God. Jesus was sovereignly in control of every element of his death, every aspect of it. He could have stopped any beating. He could have stopped any whipping. He could have stopped any flogging. He could have made himself invisible and walked out of Herod's praetorium just like he did the temple at the end of chapter 8. He didn't do that. Why? Because he says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. Whose initiative was it that led to the death of Christ? It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't Caiaphas or Pontius Pilate or Herod Antipas. It was none of those men. You know who it was? Jesus. The cross was his doing. He pursued this. He went after us. This was his own initiative. He didn't try and avoid the cross. He didn't try and skirt around the cross. He, he wasn't trying to get out from under it. He wasn't trying to, 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 to avoid it at all. He set his face to Jerusalem, and he knew why he came to this earth. He came to this earth to die by his own initiative. It was his doing. It was his doing. There was nobody, nobody in Palestine that could take his life from him. It was completely by his own initiative and his own doing. Notice how different that is from other shepherds, by the way, like a Palestinian shepherd who would die for their sheep. Would they be trying to live or trying to die in protecting their sheep? They would be trying to live. A normal shepherd might might sacrifice or risk his life trying to save the sheep, but he would never go into an encounter to save a sheep intending to die. That was never the intention. The intention was to live, to rescue and save the sheep, but to live through that event. No shepherd could ever think of actually going into an encounter with the intention of dying. But Jesus did. This good shepherd did. He came to save his sheep. He knew it would cost him his life. He did it willingly. He did it by his own initiative. It was completely his doing. And you say, why was he hiding himself out of the temple and leaving the temple? Was he trying to avoid death? No, he wasn't trying to avoid death. Listen, he was orchestrating the timing of his death because his hour was not yet. He knew when he would die, and he would die at precisely the right time, at precisely the right hands, in precisely the right manner, to fulfill all that was written of his death in the Old Testament. He wouldn't die by stoning in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. Six months later, at Pentecost, he would die on a cross, hung there by Jews and by Romans as the means to God's appointed end. But it was by his own initiative. He was orchestrating the events and the timing of his death perfectly because he is the sovereign controller of all of those things, which is what he means when he says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. The word authority, exousia, is a word that is kind of difficult to translate into English. 
William Hendrickson in his commentary says there's probably no single English word that is a good equivalent for that word. It has been variously translated as authority or right to rule or power, sometimes translated as freedom or sovereignty or jurisdiction or liberty. And it is the idea that he has within his, his own grasp the authority, the power, the sovereignty, and the jurisdiction over his death and over his life. I have authority or freedom to lay it down. I have authority or freedom to take it up again. Both of those are within his freedom. That's, that is, by the way, another word for sovereignty. That's what we mean when we speak of the sovereignty of God. We mean that God is free. He is compelled by nothing outside of him and nothing inside of him. Or sorry, nothing outside of him, but only what is inside of him. He is compelled only by his own nature and his own character. But he is free in regards to all other things. That's why he can show mercy or not show mercy. He can show compassion or not show compassion. He can do with his creatures as he pleases. He sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases because he is sovereign. He is free to do as he might choose. That's the word that Jesus uses. I am free. I have the authority, the power, and the jurisdiction over my own death. And I have that same freedom, that power, and authority over taking my life up again, raising myself from the dead. When you hear a man say that, do you understand why it is that they would say in verses 19 and 21, he's a demon-possessed man, he's crazy, he's gone insane? If you heard somebody say that, you would think the same thing. That's what Jesus is saying. I, I, I am the one who has authority over my life. This would come as a shock to these men, by the way. They thought they were going to control the day of his death. They thought that they were in control of the manner of his death. They thought they were in control of the timing of his death and everything happening with his death. This is what they were planning and executing. They, they had their plans all in place. They thought they controlled it and he was trying to avoid it. And that was not the case at all. Jesus was going to the cross and he would use their wickedness and their wicked hearts to do exactly what God had predetermined and predestined should occur. Why? Because it was the will of the Father for the Son to die for his sheep so that he might secure their salvation and bring them all in, to gather them all in, to save them, and to lose not one of them, but to bring them all in and raise them all up on the last day, John 6. And this commandment, Jesus said at the end of verse 18, this commandment I have received from my Father. Now, the Son, in His incarnation, submitted Himself to the will of the Father, to the direction of the Father, and this command, this authority, was given to the Son by the Father. So the Father's will was what the Son would do all of this, and the Son willed the very same thing. And the Father gave into the power and authority of that submissive Son the authority and commandment to do all that He was going to do for His sheep, to voluntarily give up His life, to voluntarily take it up again. All of that was given to Him by the Father. And guess what? The Son marvelously and perfectly in obedience did everything that the Father had given Him to do and carried out every commandment that the Father had given Him to do. That is why on the cross He said, it is finished. And He gave up His Spirit. He gave up His Spirit. Once He had atoned for the sins of His people, once He had died in their place as their substitute to pay the penalty for their sin, it was done. And there was no need to hang around. He said it is finished. He gave up His Spirit. And that was it. Not a moment longer. He died on His own timing and on His own terms. Now what a glorious picture of the atonement is given to us in John 10 compared to Brian McLaren or Bill O'Reilly. Those ideas or those notions that Jesus died as an accident or as a martyr, that is profane blasphemy. Profane blasphemy. You know what is beautiful? That it pleased the Father to crush His Son. You know what's equally beautiful? That it pleased the Son 
to be crushed for his people. For us. That's a beautiful thing. It wasn't power. It wasn't money. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't to hold up some nice utopian ideals. It is because the Father gave the Son a commission. Son, here's a people. Go save them. Redeem them. Pay the price for them. Gather them in. Secure their salvation. And bring them all into the eternal kingdom for our glory. And the Son perfectly did everything the Father gave him to do. For this reason, the Father loves him. And that love is shed abroad in our hearts as we respond back to the Lord with love for what he has done for us. His sheep. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for such a beautiful portrait of the atonement. And uh, it is in your word that we know these things about what Christ has done and how he has done them for us. We thank you for securing our salvation. And we thank you for these truths that your son was not a victim, but he was a volunteer. That he freely and fully did all of this on our behalf. We are so grateful. We are unworthy of anything, let alone such immense grace and sacrifice. Thank you for a perfect shepherd who is gathering in all that belong to him and will do so freely, will do so fully, and will do so for your eternal glory. It's that that we seek, and we want to give you glory and honor for what you have done in us. And may you bless and may you keep both now and in eternity all those who belong to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.